Good evening, all, or good morning, good day, wherever you happen to be uh, at at the moment. I think uh, mostly people will be on uh, British or European time, but uh, do feel free to make use of the chat function to say where you are and uh, who you are, where you are, and what you're drinking. And also <clears throat> add in any comments on things I say or things you would like said. And of course, we also have the question and answer uh, function if you want to ask a particular question. What I'm going to talk about today is the 2021 Vintage in Burgundy. And I will do it just by going through briefly the growing season. I won't do a sort of day by day account of what happened, but more a question of using incidents in the growing season to try to understand how the uh, wines have come out at the end of the day. And then we'll take a look at various winemaking and uh, wine aging options to see what choices people made and what effect they might have on the wines. Then we'll come to how the wines taste like and what might be a good reason to buy them and what might be a less good reason. So uh, I'm trying and put them in place in terms of other vintages. Great. Well, I can see that the uh, the chat is going very well. We've got Tromso uh, there in uh, in Norway and uh, New York, uh, Nottingham, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Sweden, New Orleans, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Um, and a couple of sad people from Australia saying it's two o'clock in the morning, so we're not going to stay with it. And uh, and somebody from Basingstoke, my hometown, lovely. Grand. Well, uh, <coughs> keep it going. I see some of you are drinking water. I'm actually not drinking anything. We started uh, our um January, dry January yesterday, and we're going to finish it tomorrow. So it's not going to be a very long dry January, but even so, three days is probably a good thing to do. Um, tasting the 2021s, so I spent all of October and November uh, tasting away as busily as I could, sort of over 200 domains in the Cote d'Or. Earlier in the year, I'd done uh, Chablis and uh, occasionally other parts of Burgundy. And one feature that did come out of it was that the wines were in some ways very easy to taste and in some ways difficult. The thing that was easy was that you would end the week still feeling uh, relatively fresh. Uh, I remember being wiped out at the end of every week's tasting of the 19s and 20s. And uh, even by the end of each day, it was pretty tiring. But in 21, the wines were easier to spend time with and didn't leave you tired at the end of it. On the other hand, they were difficult because you needed to pinpoint what was, on the one hand, a cheerful freshness, uh, an attractive character, or possibly, on the other hand, something which was a little bit lean and green and raw and would never come together. So to get a really accurate view on any given wine was not all that easy to do. It was probably easier last year with 2020 when either they were powerful, delicious wines or else they were over the top. Uh, too hot, too extracted. So let's start with uh, my word. I mean, uh, I can see how many people have signed up and I can see how many different countries <laughs> are showing. So it's not quite one per country, but it is uh, uh, a really good cross section. So I thank you for that. Right. Um, so the growing season, well, of course, as we're all now aware, it began with hideous frosts in April. Um, after a very warm week at the end of March, which we've got the uh, vegetation cycle up and running, and then crunch, down it came, 
sixth, seventh, and eighth of April. I'm not going to go into the details of how each night and each day, each morning uh, differed, but clearly everybody was affected from uh, Chablis right the way down through into the Beaujolais. And the worst affected were the white wines because they tend to start their cycle earlier, and in particular, those in traditionally early spots. Um, Plus, of course, anybody who didn't protect their vines at all was more likely to suffer. The people who suffered least were the red uh, wines in backward spots, um, areas that are typically always a bit cooler, a bit slower to start, and the handful of um, possible ways in which people were able to use uh, successful protection. So in terms of protection, you could uh, light the candles or bougie, uh, but they didn't, they weren't very effective unless you used an awful lot of them and you lit them very early in the evening. Uh, and the other problem with those is that they're ecologically not very friendly and people are unkeen to continue to uh, use them. Um, secondly, um, you could try and uh, protect by water aspersion, if you're up in Chablis, there's a system to do it. When you spray water over the vines, just as they hit freezing, and it forms a protective shell of ice and doesn't go below freezing, there are some negatives there. A, you're wasting water, and B, uh, let's say in the Fourchon vineyard in Chablis, which is widely uh, widely uses water aspersion, what was clear after that was that the growing cycle went ahead earlier, the crops were bigger, uh, and the grapes started ripening earlier, but at the same time, they're also more susceptible to disease, mildew, and more susceptible to rot. So you do have to think about what's going to happen later in the season. The other thing pioneered in Chablis and possibly going to come in in the Cote d'Or is to have electric cables, which enable you to heat up your vines. Um, but it's massively, it's quite expensive to put in and massively wasteful of electricity. So that's not great news in the current circumstances either. And then in a totally different direction, uh, various people who believe in uh, phytotherapy, the use of plants to uh, uh, improve the quality of whatever you're growing. Um, some of those, they treated their vines when they knew it was going to frost with a mix of sarriette in French, savory in English, thyme and Oregon, oregano, um before and then they put on a little spray of valerian and nettles afterwards and they all seem to say we think it did good but to what extent you can actually prove that i'm not sure one other person said that they sprayed pectins on the vines just before it frosted and she thought they had done good as well what didn't work were covering your vines in tarpaulins because they just trapped the cold air underneath the tarpaulins and froze even worse or using wind turbines, which will happen when the frost is only quite a light one and you've got warm air quite close by. And if you churn up the cold air, then the warm air comes in and it's all good news. But when you've just got this massive blanket of polar cold air, then they're not going to do you any good at all. Um, so we may suffer from this again. Um, global warming is uh, an enemy rather than a friend. We had a very warm October already. Uh, I was listening to the Today program on Radio 4 this morning, and they're talking about the hottest ever temperatures in January already and the possibility of an El Nino year. But if we get very warm temperatures February and March, then the vegetation cycle will start very early 
And there's then still the risk of this massive flood of cold air coming down in, um, what do they call it, a sort of a freeze bomb effect. They've just called it the one they've had in um, uh, in North America. Uh, and we are at risk of those. In terms of the impact on 2021 vintage, uh, the frost, rather than just being a question of reducing your crop, it does have some quality impacts. The least frosted vineyards made the best grapes as well as the, um, uh, the most grapes. And it was quite obvious in a number of cellars that you'd be going along and quite liking the wines uh, without being stunned by them. And then you come across one that was considerably more interesting, more classical, and you would be told that that was a vineyard that escaped the frost. So uh, that definitely has an impact. And the frosted vines remained very fragile all through the season. This is a parallel with 2016, when there was a big mildew pressure afterwards. And if you hadn't been frosted, you resisted the mildew. Oidium came next, uh, rot towards the end of the season. Every time with all these problems, if you hadn't been damaged by the frost, you were much more likely to resist without difficulty. And obviously also all the um, various forms of frost protection, there is often an ecological uh, negative attached to them. Right, well, let's get those uh, three disastrous days in the beginning of April and move in, uh, instead into the summer months. And I won't trace sort of week by week, day by day, but just to say in the summer months, the things that you had to uh, cope with were mildew, first of all, oidium, various points in the summer, hail, not much, but there was some hail, particularly in Chevrolet-Chambertin in June. And there was some hail also in parts of the Maconnais. Um, there was a little attack of caterpillars called mange bourgeon or uh, bud eaters. Uh, so that affected some people. I heard about it more in the Côte de Nuit, but I don't know scientifically if that uh, is accurate. Uh, and then, of course, you had the rot, which set in a little bit in August, but then dried. But once that had happened, it left uh, a little foyer, they would say in French, of uh, rot, which once it rained again, sometimes time in September, uh, the rot could um, uh, take hold. Throughout the season, though, it wasn't a consistent picture of um, rainfall all the time. It felt like it, but actually you'd often have two or three days of drier weather. And in the Coke door, at any rate, it was reasonably possible to maintain uh, an okay spraying pro uh, program. So it was possible to fight back against these things. And even people who were just starting out to be organic found mostly that they could continue their programs and they were able to save the crops. It was way more difficult down south, possibly in the Maconnais, and certainly in the Beaujolais. I went through in July and I just saw this group of vignerons who were completely worn out, absolutely shattered by the work that they had to do day in, day out, and the fact that it was a lot more difficult there to save your vines from the various disease problems. So <clears throat> it's not looking good then by the time we come through uh, towards the end of August. Uh, but the weather did get better in the second part of August and September wasn't too bad at all. So now we come to harvest time and people are talking about 2021 being a late harvest. Well, yes, it's late against 2003, 2005, 7, 11, 15, um, 18, 19, 20, 
and subsequently 22. But actually, it's very normal um, to have a mid-September harvest. Um, shouldn't be a surprise. It shouldn't be difficult. And if you go back to the 90s and before the 90s, you'd actually be pretty thrilled to be picking in uh, the middle of September. In the 1950s, almost every vintage was picked in October. And even since 2000, um, 2004, 8, and 10 wouldn't have been earlier. And 2013, uh, was, oh, and 16 wasn't earlier. And 13 was definitely later. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's far from unique, but it's a, an old normal rather than a current normal. Um, and then when did you pick? And the weird thing, and I've never seen this before, uh, any vintage ever, is that Chablis, Cote de Nuit, Cote de Bone basically all picked at the same time. It was a question of finding the optimum window. Um, so one or two early birds might have picked one or two very early vineyards because there are plenty of people who start their main crop on one day, but they will have sent a small team out to pick maybe some young vines, maybe an area that's suffering a bit from disease, maybe uh, an area which is always typically uh, going to ripen before the rest. And then they will say, but my main starting date was X. So it rained a little bit 14th, 15th, and possibly 16th um, of, of September. And then the, the early birds, um, without anybody being exaggeratedly early, picked on the 17th and 18th. Lots of people in the Cote de Bone, lots of people in um, Chablis, and already a certain number in the Cote de Nuit. Um, people were, of course, looking at forecasts, and they could see forecast was uh, for rain. Um, so uh, the 18th was a Friday. By Saturday evening, the weather deteriorated. Sunday 20th, Monday 21st, uh, it did definitely rain quite heavily on the Sunday though it can, of course, vary from one part to another. Um, you probably took the 22nd to dry off from that. And then there's a big bunch of picking, either for the first time or else people who did a bit on 17th, 18th, uh, 19th, and then continued on 23rd. The 23rd through to 26th, you had good weather on the whole. And that is when the vast majority of the crop of the good producers would have been brought in. There was more rain forecast for the following weekend, and indeed the 27th, was uh, quite heavy rainfall, um, and though some people were continuing through to the 30th and even very occasionally into the beginning of October, and that was rare, um, the bulk of the grapes came in, as I say, in that period, 23rd to 26th. And that, to me, is probably the sweet spot, um, with the exception maybe of Chablis, where uh, the grapes were only just ripe around the 17th, 18th, but nonetheless, the degrees were quite good, um, and they were fairly healthy. But if you waited uh, until after that first bit of rain, it did dilute the grapes up in Chablis a bit, and it did start advancing the rot. So it was a trade-off, uh, not an absolute disastrous call, not like uh, 2013, when if you hadn't picked before the really wet weekend of around the 4th of October, uh, then, then it was a disaster after that. That wasn't the case here, but you probably did better in Chablis. Uh, fractionally, if you can pick just before. So those were the picking dates, and as I say, are very even across the piece. But, and I don't yet have an explanation for this, 
the red grapes of the Cote de Bone, which typically would ripen before the Cote de Noe and typically get picked before, they're not in this year, were clearly less ripe uh, than the phenologically ripe than those of the Cote de Noe. And it may just be to do with uh, them having been set back by having been more heavily frosted, because the frost conditions were worse uh, in the Cote de Bone. So from here, we come to the uh, conditions of the grapes. Um, and most people said, and on the whole, I see no reason to disbelieve, that the grapes were reasonably healthy, particularly after sorting. And it's standard nowadays for any good producer is going to have a sorting table to deselect what they don't want in reds. But a lot of people wouldn't bother to use that for the whites. Uh, but they did mostly in uh, 2021. And if your preoccupation is oidium, which is much more of a white wine disease, you actually have two bites of that particular um, rotten cherry. Uh, one is on the sorting table, and the other is having um, pressed your grapes, you taste the uh, juice, the must, and you decide uh, as it settles in the tank whether or not you need some additional treatment to clean it up. So you could fine it or filter it at that stage. Though if you filter it, you're probably going to have to use artificial yeasts afterwards. But you can then quite easily remove any taste taint from oidium uh, if you do that. Um, equally with the reds, um, we sort of think you ferment your reds in your vats and then you send um, the now um, embryo wine straight to barrel, but actually what you will do is you'll take it out of the first uh, set of tanks and you'll put it to settle in another set of tanks when any solids and impurities will sort of drift down to the bottom and then you can choose whether you take off the juice relatively clear or whether you allow a certain amount of lees in with the juice into your barrel. And if you didn't take care in 2021, you got some really nasty shocks fairly early on in barrel, when suddenly you got some really ugly reductive flavours, even to the extent of rotten eggs, um, because the lees were not necessarily particularly healthy, um, because you had had to use a lot of treatments in the vines to fight against the various diseases, and you may not have had fully healthy skins. So that was um, definitely um, an issue. But you probably, if you're going to get a negative shock, uh, shock, you probably got that shock quite early on. So by the end of the aging period, it shouldn't be too much of a problem. But we will come back to that in terms of decisions that people took in how long they were going to age their wines. Um, so what else to say? Sugar levels were pretty much up where they ought to be. Um, well, I say ought to be. So what do you expect your sugar levels to be? Well, typically, uh, you know, when I was starting out uh, in the early 80s, you would expect a wine to be labelled probably as 12 and a half alcohol, but you would know that people had used one or two degrees of sugar to get it to 12 and a half, and the cowboys had used rather more than that. Um, nowadays, we have been through vintages 18, 19, 20, actually less so 22, but 18 through 20, when you were seeing regularly 14s, 14 and a halves, occasionally 15 and a half, 16s. 
And frankly, I don't want to drink Burgundy at those sorts of, not those higher figures at any rate. For whites, 14 and a half, perhaps, but uh, for reds, I would prefer less. And I definitely don't want to get into the 15s for either color. Um, so we don't quite know what's normal anymore. Um, I think a lot of people would say that they would be really happy with 13 or 13 and a half. Um, and the grapes were coming in between 11 and a half and 12 and a half or 13, uh, depending on exactly where you were and when you picked. Um, and then you've got uh, decisions to make um, uh, about that. So uh, let's take a look at the white grapes, first of all. Um, the white grapes have arrived. I'm quite a fan of people crushing their um, white grapes to break the skins before they press them. But people who like to do that do do it on the basis of having healthy grapes. So they would typically, people who would normally crush, a lot of them didn't crush this year. Um, but now you've got your, your, your juice, and at this point, you can decide, do you want to correct it in any way? Some years you might want to acidify, which at this point, you've got very high acidity, albeit mostly malic. Um, and some people might want to chaptalize, i.e. add sugar. Now, it's begun to get a bit of a pejorative concept, chaptalizing, which I think is unfair. I don't think it's a problem, unless you do it excessively. And most people I talked to said, yes, we chaptalized, everybody had to chaptalize, but not more than half a degree or possibly one degree. The people who said a little amount, maybe they did a bit more. I would only start to get worried if you were going much above one degree of added sugar in order to get up to 12 and a half, 13. Um, I think then it might start to uh, interfere a tiny bit with the balance of the wine. But up to one degree, I really don't think it's a problem. And um, this is true for both colors. If you chaptalize a little bit by adding sugar in fractional amounts, um, you can actually prolong the length of your fermentation. And people like to do that, um, uh, especially in the reds. Um, I will mention that again when we talk about the reds. One or two people didn't chaptalize, and not because they said blithely. They, it's not a question of them telling me they didn't chaptalize and they made 13 degrees alcohol and wasn't everything wonderful, because you might not believe those people. They said, no, I've got some 11.5s, 11 11.3, 11 11.7, uh, and I was happy to leave them like, uh, like that. And they make wines of beautiful purity. Um, I will cite a couple of names, would have been more, but Fabien Dovisa of Domaine, Jean Dovisa, Fils and Chablis, uh, had some things under 12, which he left as they were. And uh, Jean-Marc Rouleau as well. He had a couple, one cuvee tasted as low as 11.3 and a red 11.5. And I thought the wines were, particularly that red Montley, absolutely lovely. But they make wines of less body with perhaps less aging potential. So um, uh, that's a choice to make. It's a brave choice not to chaptalize at all if you're sort of below 12. But And I don't, certainly don't mind if people do chaptalize, but I did rather like the wines that haven't. Uh, Silva has asked, isn't there a law allowing only to chaptalize uh, a certain degree? It uh, used to be two. It was brought down to one in most places. Uh, and you are allowed in a given uh, vintage, a region is allowed to apply for a slightly higher level. And I believe in Chablis, they are asked for one and a half. Um, that's off the top of my head. That might not be perfectly accurate. Um, 
And there was a case of a uh, certain negotiant being uh, uh, had up in the courts in 1987 for overchapitalizing by three degrees. And uh, one of the excuses was that but surely everybody does that. And maybe in the 70s and early 80s, um, uh, people did, but uh, uh, that's clearly too much. Um, so after that, you you send your whites off to, uh, well, they're already in barrel for their fermenting and, and away you go. We'll talk about the maturation a bit later on. In the reds, you again, uh, your grapes have arrived. You have um, first choice is whether or not you are going to destem them uh, or whether you're going to put them in whole bunches into your vats or indeed some blend of the two. So whole bunches have become very popular in these recent warmer years, um, and particular if the grapes are healthy. So there was a fairly widespread view of people uh, to use uh, fewer whole bunches in um, 2021. So people said that the stems are not fully ripe, and the stems may not be completely healthy. If there is a little bit of rot, you can see it on the grapes, but it can also stick a bit to the uh, stems and you don't see it. So a fairly large number of people either used fewer stems or none at all in 21. Um, but not everybody. Uh, a few people reduced from 100 or 80% down to 30 or 50. And actually, I found there was quite a sweet spot of the people who used 30% stems in around that area, where you got a little bit of effect, but not too much. It, um, you didn't get any negatives. And I found actually quite often those wines seemed to me to have a little bit more succulence and a little bit longer flavor. But remember, I am somebody who rather likes stems in his wines. <laughs> Guess what? Nobody in Burgundy always goes in the same direction. And we had several people who went the other way and used uh, more stems. Um, Fred uh, Weber, who makes wines of Bouchard Perifis, used some more stems. Uh, Arno Morte used more stems. Um, and uh, one or two other people also mentioned it uh, because they feel that stems slightly uh, remove acidity. And at this early stage, it looked as though the wines were potentially over acid. <clears throat> Change later on. Uh, and then one person who'd never, who'd used some stems before, but had never used 100%, went the whole hog, and every one of his cuvées is 100% stems, and that's uh, Nicolas Groffier, Domaine Robert Groffier. So uh, he decided to go counter-carrot, which was really quite interesting, but uh, and they're fascinating wines. Um, so now at this stage, you have either destemmed or not. There's also another group of people who are moving more and more towards what they call pity cell, it's been pioneered by various people over the last 20 odd years. Uh, Vougeret at one point, David Dubon at one point, uh, but it's really catching um, fire at the moment. Uh, and that is when you have a vast team of people, it's unbelievably labor intensive, who as the bunches come up very slowly across the sorting table, you grab the bunch and you snip off uh, little sections of the grapes so you're going to be left in your hand with the main stem, which could be a bit green, and the start of the smaller stems. And you've got left now on your um, uh, sorting table, not necessarily single berries, but little groups of two or three berries stuck together on one very small stem. So you're keeping your grapes intact, but you're removing the sort of flavor effect of having the main stems. 
with it. This is called Pedicel, and uh, quite a few people are heading in that direction. Gilbert Feletig a bit, uh, Jean-Pierre Guillon and Von Romanet totally, um, and uh, a more extreme version. Um, Mr. Garcia in uh, Nuit Saint-Georges is doing what he calls berry by berry, where each individual berry gets snipped off. Uh, but it's time consuming, and I would hate to be doing that job at harvest time, uh, I can tell you. Um, anyway, so uh, that's enough for this vintage scent on a whole bunch. We now also, for the Reds, have the chaptalizing um, uh, issue, and it's again a very similar thing in Reds and Whites in terms of decision-making that people took. But a lot of them said, we just put some in towards the end of fermentation to make it uh, go further. Uh, a case in point would be Andrew Nielsen, our Australian friend of Le Grappin, who had two premier crews in 2021, which both came in at 11.5 natural. The Savigny he left as it was, because it fermented normally. The uh, Bone Boucherot, um, he chaptalized simply because otherwise it had completely gone through its fermentation in five days, and that wasn't long enough to extract all the flavors that he wanted in the wine. So he just chaptalized small amounts to keep fermentation going, purely for the benefit of the flavor profile of the wine. Uh, and a lot of people would have done versions of that. I just think his case uh, illustrates it beautifully. Um, and now, so you've got your uh, grapes, with or without stems and juice in your fermenting vats, and you've got to decide how you're going to extract. Um, almost everybody said they went for soft extraction, which in any case is part of the zeitgeist these days. Um, and that means you don't do much punching down, maybe a little bit of foot, foot treading, just enough to uh, break up the cap that forms at the top of your vat. Uh, you use more pumping over, but do it carefully to make it more of a wash than something, a brutal splashing. Um, and you intervene as little as possible, and you probably don't have an extremely long batting time in uh, 2021. A few people went counter that. Uh, Justine Clerget, for example, in um, uh, Vougeot, and Christophe Rumier, in fact. He went back to doing a little bit of punching down, which he'd stopped doing in recent years. Uh, Bouchard, again, did a little bit more. Um, so you, it's a narrow balance here. You've got a harvest that doesn't especially want to release its goodies, its color and its flavor profile. But if you try and extract too firmly, then you're definitely going to release some rather green tannins and get vegetable flavors in your wine. So if you do nothing at all, you can end up with very light wines, which perhaps you're happy to accept. If you do too much, you definitely end up with things that you don't want to extract. There's probably a perfect balance in which you can try one or two things and do them gently, but make sure you give your um, the quality of the fruit in your vats the best chance to express itself. So I'm against people who went for very heavy extraction, not that there were many, uh, but I can understand that you might want to do one or two more delicate things. And you've got to keep tasting. You've got to keep checking and making sure you haven't taken it too far. So it's, again, genius is in the infinite capacity of taking pains. One or two people mentioned to me that, as well as adding sugar in some cuvées, they did a little bit of acid correction, 
because they had spotted that the tartaric acid was really quite low. The pHs are surprisingly high for a vintage that tasted really aggressively acid uh, when it um, first started before the malolactic fermentation. But the thing is, there was a huge amount of malic acid, which we haven't seen in the hot years, and all that changed when it went through the malolactic fermentation. And a few people said, yeah, we did acidify one or two cubes. I haven't named them in my reports because there is definitely a pejorative feeling against acidifying in Burgundy. Uh, but I admire their honesty for saying so. And given that I know quite a lot of other people have done it without saying so, uh, I haven't specified who has. But a number of people, if I did ask the question, said, well, we didn't have to in 21, but we did in 2022. So that will be interesting to take a look at uh, when we come to 22s in a year's time. Um, so both colours tasted, frankly, very ugly. So I'm told I didn't really taste them much uh, before the malolactic fermentation, which mostly went through a few very early, mostly in the spring. Um, and a few were late finishing off, even finishing off this autumn. Uh, but most would have been done by the middle of the summer. Um, and then the wines started their real élevage maturation and Fortunately, they can taste a great deal nicer than they had uh, uh, earlier on. Um, There's a question that just appeared there about reverse um, uh, osmosis, something which um, was certainly being done a lot in uh, Bordeaux. A few people experimented with it uh, in Burgundy. Mostly they've stopped doing it, partly because they haven't needed to in the hot, dry years. There's one family which own a couple of machines like that. Uh, I, don't know um, the one that Sylvain has cited uh, in, a, in a question to host some panelists. Um, uh, I haven't tasted his wines yet, so I don't know. Uh, but I think the view is nowadays that probably reverse osmosis, other forms of concentration machines are really not necessary anymore. On we go, which I had a glass of wine with me now, but I'm going to be strict for my three days. Um, <clears throat> so your wines have now fermented, and it's uh, the whites will have done that for most people at any rate in barrel, uh, less so in Chablis, where you often uh, ferment in stainless steel and then take the barrel afterwards. Um, but in general, the whites fermented in barrel, and the reds you put into barrel after your fermentation is over, and you've got to decide what to do in terms of new wood. Well, you've got a problem. Um, the problem is that you have your barrel cellar. And you've got a huge number of barrels of the previous year and quite a few years before, and you haven't got any wine to put into them. Uh, so how are you going to get around this? The first thing you might do is cancel uh, all your order, if you've placed it so far, of new barrels 2021, simply so you can use your existing stock. You may also feel that the relatively fragile nature, which is what you think of 2021 early on, at any rate, doesn't isn't going to suit new wood. Uh, so you may not want it for, for that reason too, uh, but in particular because you've uh, you've got to find a way of using up your barrels that you have in your cellar. A few people in white, where these um, yields were exceptionally low, tried to go out and buy Chardonnay from elsewhere. A lot of people up in Chablis did that after they'd been badly hit in 2016, but it was enormously more difficult to be able to buy Chardonnay from Macanay, it wasn't possible, and even the south of France was a bit difficult. A few people did buy cuvées 
which enabled them to fill up their barrels with uh, this additional wine, which they then bottled early, and most of them have already sold it, and it's probably been drunk. And one or two of them might continue making that cuvee in the future, rather than it being a one-shot uh, with their suppliers, uh, and others will just have done it for 21. Uh, in the reds, on the whole, the yields were rarely so low that you had desperately to go out and find something else to fill the barrels with. Um, <clears throat> but you might nonetheless not choose to buy a lot of um, new wood. And you would put your little baby wines, if you had a sort of Bourgogne Pastigram that wasn't necessarily always an oak, or a Bourgogne Aligote that wasn't an oak, in 2021, those sorts of wines did get the oak treatment, though not new wood. A couple of people said to me for reds, they used more new wood, um, even quite a lot more, because it being a lighter and more fragile vintage, they wanted the oak to supply a support that wasn't naturally there in the wine. I'd be pretty wary about doing that. Um, I think that comes into the cosmetic field and you definitely risk uh, adding a form of structure to which the fruit can't stand up. And uh, I will repeat the words. I've mentioned them before. My barrel-broken friend, Mel Knox, uh, who says there's no such thing as an over-oaked wine. There's merely underwined barrels. Um, there weren't many people who took that route, but a couple did. And you will see in all my notes. So um, we now come to the last thing about the maturation is how long to do it for. Because the acidity has stayed a little quite high and a bit spiky in the whites, most people have been happy to do the full maturation for their white wines, except if they had very small cuvées. If you just got a couple of barrels where you would normally have had six or eight, uh, you maybe haven't got a tank to rack the wine from your barrels into, uh, except for something which uses one of those um, sort of floating lids. Uh, but they're not quite as airtight as you would want for long-term aging. So a number of people who've got some cubase of only one or two barrels have decided to bottle those early and by hand direct from the barrel, uh, rather than risk them suffering during a uh, second winter in tank. Otherwise, people are saying, we're going to uh, keep our whites in tank for as long as we normally do, uh, often through to second spring. In reds, it's a different story. The vast majority of people have said, uh, we're going to bottle early. I mean, not ludicrously early. It's not as if instead of a second winter, they already bottled them in, in October, November. But a lot of people were bringing forward by two or three months because they felt the wine's a little bit fragile. Also, if you um, bring forward by uh, a couple of months, so instead of bottling in January, you're bottling in November, you can actually then use those barrels again rather than leaving them empty, but you can pour your 22s, a much bigger crop, into those barrels. So you're, you're getting a sort of sensible use of your barrels out of it as well. So as ever, there are several reasons behind any choice. Um, so most people are uh, bottling their reds a little bit early, and that's probably truer in the Côte de Bone than in the Côte de Nuit, but it's fairly true throughout. Right. Uh, so now we've got to a position in which a lot of whites um, will have been bottled by the end of this year. Some of the reds will have been bottled by the end of the year and others coming up soon. And uh, all the merchants in uh, London next week may be showing the wines with a few producers coming over to help them. Um, and uh, uh, a lot of you I know 
I recognize a number of the names on the, uh, the list of uh, attendees, uh, and I know a number of you will be there at various tastings. So what do we think of the wines? What's the style? What are the comparisons? Um, and I'm going to start with what the growers think. And I got some wonderfully different views. Some of them, um, and particularly early on, maybe before they had got used to having people come around and they thought, oh dear, we better do a bit of marketing. Some of them said, I really hate this vintage. But these were typically the sorts of people who themselves, the owner operators, spend all their time in the summer out in the vines rather than just having a team to do it for them. And it must have been so stressful uh, managing it. I really take my hat off to them for how well people did react, what work they put in. I saw how exhausted they were. I saw how low the morale was, but they really kept fighting and to good effect. So I discount some of that hate the vintage, um, but I think they were just letting off steam. A lot of people, and I've used this word several times, but a lot of people did remark on the fact that the wines were fragile. Uh, and I think that's true. I don't think it's necessarily dangerous, but I think there will be only a few wines which will make really old bones. Now, that may not matter. The older you are, then perhaps the less you want a vintage, which is going to be uh, capable of keeping for a long, long time. Everybody remarked how much better the wines were since the malolactic uh, fermentation took place. And equally, I found, as I tasted through October, November, into December, I found that I was getting a better impression of the vintage. Now, it may be because I was uh, up in the, more in the Coach Nuit, where I think the wines are better. Later on, it may be because the wines genuinely got better as every week went by, or it may be because my own palate became more attuned and uh, I saw the, uh, the nicer side of the vintage. So it's something of everything. A lot of producers discussed, described the wines as classic, which I resist because it was a very unclassic growing season. And they said, yes, but what we mean by classic is that it goes back to how wines used to be and that they're not too deep in colour and that uh, they're fragrant and they're not too high in alcohol uh, and, 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 and so on and so forth. And there is an argument for that. I think the successful wines could be described in that way. And there are plenty of those. Um, so that's fine. And a few people said, I really love this vintage. This is great. This is the wine I really want to make. And I'm afraid more often than not, uh, I put that down to uh, an excess of seller's marketing uh, rather than genuinely uh, thinking these are the best wines uh, they've ever made. I think perhaps it was also a reaction to the wines having got so much better than their worst fears and had turned out quite nice and in the style that they liked. Um, so I think some positives are definitely fair enough and be taken. So on to comparing with other vintages. And um, to do this, I compare with how I tasted other vintages at the same stage and then extrapolate forwards into how those vintages have uh, uh, turned out. Um, so in the whites, the first thing to say immediately is that they're better than 2016 and better than 2013. 2016, that other heavily frosted vintage, we had the effect of two generations of grapes. So you've got a sweet and sour flavor profile. Uh, the sweet being some slightly overripe first generation grapes and the sour being underripe second generation. I very rarely tasted that at all in the whites. Uh, or 2013, when you had 
uh, a vintage that hadn't quite ripened when it started to rot. Uh, and you got slightly shrill wines if you picked early and soft, and in some cases, disastrous wines if you picked too late. There's a little element of that, particularly up in Chablis, but it's nothing like uh, to the same degree. And I think the wines are mostly a lot cleaner in 2021. The acidity was high before malolactic. It can still be quite high, but the, the fruit itself tastes quite soft to me. Uh, so they're not going to make um, grand old wines as a result of that. But they are refreshing. Uh, there is a reasonable purity to most of them, and it's fairly obvious uh, the small number that aren't. They typically have a clear reflection of the sites that they come from. They obviously don't rival the great years of which I would describe as 2014, 2017, and 2020, and nor are they like the warm, powerful years of 09, 15, and 19, where again the wines can be extremely good if you made the right picking decisions. Um, so they could sort of be equivalent to 07 and 11. Um, 2012, though I actually I rather like 2012s, but they occasionally get a little bit of the electric feel of 2012 in some 21s. And 2018, which is a vintage which other people like less than I do, um, but it's um, uh, a crop in which uh, you don't get immense concentration, um, which is probably true of uh, 21 as well. But it's a decent vintage. 2021. And if uh, either you see in my or other people's notes, wines which suggest uh, the, 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 the top end of the success rate, or you taste them next week or at another occasion, and you like the wines, then there's no reason uh, not to uh, enjoy them and uh, perhaps purchase them. There could be one reason not to purchase them, and I'll come to that at the end. It's called price. Um, now about reds. Um, uh, I've already mentioned that I think the Cotonou have riper uh, flavoured uh, fruit on the whole. Uh, I do think the wines respect the hierarchy. This is probably true in both colours, in that a lot of the Bourgoins uh, and lesser appellations were a bit on the scrawny side. Village wines, better than that. Premier Cruz and Grand Cruz equally also in the hierarchy uh, really showed um, their ranking. Um, so what vintages might we compare them with, uh, starting with the youngest? Some, I asked the growers that regularly. Some said 2017 um, because the wines are a bit less concentrated than, than other recent vintages and they'll be ready early. I don't see any flavor profile similarity with 17. 16 comes to mind because of the frost, but the 16s are sort of chunky and powerful and sometimes a bit monolithic, and I don't see that. Um, 14, there is a slight issue in that um, um, you had the effect of uh, rot starting. That was the year of the Suzuki uh, fruit fly. Uh, and there were definitely some wines in uh, 2021, which I felt like 2014, were a bit shrill because people had uh, panicked into picking a little bit early. It's not a major thing. It's not a huge number of wines. But it's um, it's uh, slightly uh, uh, can be an issue. Then 07 or 11 got um, uh, mentioned because they are wines that went through a growing season, which was a bit um, uh, wet and difficult through the summer. 
but they were much earlier uh, start to the cycle. They didn't get frosted, early start to the cycle, and at very early picking dates. So I don't really find parallels, apart from the fact that 7 and 11 is both a tiny bit fragile. Nobody, bar one person, mentioned 2010, but I mentioned it to them because somebody had shown me some um, statistics which show that actually in terms of temperature over the three key summer months and in terms of rainfall over three key summer months, uh, 2021, the only other vintage that equates in both of those is 2010, uh, which is interesting. And 2010 also we didn't think was a terrific vintage uh, at harvest time, and it was only a year later when it showed better, and it's gone on getting better and better. And I think the most successful wines will have something in common with 2010, but there won't be many of them. It, it, the success rate will not be as equal. And some growers mentioned 2001, but I think 2001, uh, A, it's not a vintage that I found at the time I really understood, but the wines are probably a little bit more powerful, a little bit sturdier than most uh, 21s. And I'll just also mention 2004, the year of the green meanies. Now, I don't think we'll have that much in the way of pyrazines, uh, which uh, was what caused the green meanies, um, which are, are those very sort of grilled green hazelnut flavours uh, in, in, in the wine, um, which could be very ugly. Not everybody was affected by them, but they could be very ugly. But I will say that there are an awful lot of wines in 21 in the reds where I mentioned that there is a peppery aspect to them, not quite the same as the white pepper you get when people use stems, and um, some uh, slightly vegetal notes, uh, slightly green tannins. And that could be a worry, but I don't think it's going to go down the 2004 route. But when you've got a choice, then um, peppery is fine if you like fresher style of wines. If red loires are amongst your favourites, then I wouldn't worry about pepper. If you see me, if you see the word vegetable in a, <laughs> in a note, you might steer clear. There are a couple of other things. If you see sweaty or wilder flavours in a note, except occasionally I use it for Maurice Anthony, the wildness, and it's all right. But otherwise, it could mean uh, I sniffed something which just might be bacterial, but it wasn't clear cut. Um, so there are one or two reading between the lines where you might want to avoid uh, the wines. Um, but we're definitely, and especially in the Cote de Bain, going for a fresher, uh, pepperier style of wine in 2021. Um, now, I think that covers most of what I want to say. I just have one question uh, saying, uh, two questions now, one about Chablis. Can we focus on that a little bit more? In terms of the best ones, uh, there I think I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you that you will need to pick up my uh, tasting reports uh, off my website in order to get the detail of exactly which wine, which producer, and I'm afraid you have to pay money for that, um, but or indeed um, uh, a lot of wine merchants, uh, with, with my permission, um, will pick up on my notes and on other critics' tasting notes as well. And uh, John has asked, when will we get to see the Cote de tasting report, please? Well, uh, I was hoping for Friday. Uh, I think I'm going to be uh, stuck on it over most of the weekend. Definitely be by Sunday. And what I might do is divide it into two halves. I've virtually put to bed Marcinet, Gevray, Maurice Saint-Denis, Chambon-Mus, and Vougeot, um, so I could get those out for Friday. And it may be that Vaughan Ramonet and Louis Saint-Georges 
will follow uh, uh, sort of midnight on Sunday, something like that. Um, but uh, I did take Christmas Day off and I did take my birthday on the 27th off. But apart from that, uh, ever since I finished tasting on the 10th of December, it's been absolutely flat out doing the notes. Um, so the last thing we've got to touch on is price. Uh, because I was going to say, you know, what might one's uh, buying program be? There are plenty of nice wines, uh, some very good wines. I've been sparing in my five-star rating, uh, a lot of four-star wines. Um, so there will be plenty that you could say, okay, I'm, uh, this is a style of wine which I really like. And in all the commentaries you've seen about this vintage, it divides between the people who've taken the slightly negative view of it being a slightly fragile vintage and those who are saying, but it's wonderful because these are the wines that we used to love and it's classic, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the thing is, the classic vintages were a lot less expensive than the 2021s will be. So um, where we are at the moment from the just two or three merchants whose prices that uh, I've seen um, is that the uh, generic wines and the lesser village wines um, uh, or, and many village wines, even the lesser Premier Cruz and some extent, have gone up a bit, maybe not much over 2020. Um, what people tried to do, the growers, is they tried to fix their price, which did clearly go up in 2020. They tried to fix those prices to cope with the low volumes in 2021, which they knew they were going to exist. Uh, uh, already they had in their cellars very low quantities. So they tried to fix a price that will work over two years. Since then, they've been hit with a number of, of double whammies, huge increases in fuel costs, this cost, that cost, transport costs, and so on, and so forth, raw material costs, bottles not arriving. And so I understand that a few people, quite a few of those have gone up by a small amount. Um, and I'm not sure, depends which country you're in, is where your exchange rate is. Um, so at the lower end, the price rise rises will be fairly limited, and maybe your kind, friendly importer will have kept them to zero. As you go further up the scale, so the prices become um, more uh, visible. And once you get to top Premier Cruise and Grand Cruise, some people have gone absolutely crazy. And even the growers themselves, not even the secondary market, uh, have even double the few prices. You think it's the same price as last year, but you then see you're only going to get three bottles in your case instead of six. This is a problem. Um, I can't see how this vintage can justify that. I think it could be a start of a tipping point. Burgundy is going to have to be really careful. Um, our friend Jeannie Cho Lee gave a, an address to the uh, Académie Internationale du Vin when we met for our uh, sort of um, autumn meeting. And her topic was research she'd done on the Chinese market to see what drove collectors in which directions, what they wanted to drink and what their view was on um, pricing, et cetera, et cetera. And there was bad will still towards Bordeaux because of them putting their prices up too much in 2009 and 10. And there was goodwill still towards Burgundy because there's still a complete buzz for Burgundy. And people felt that they were uh, really enjoying the wines, which they had paid a lot of money for. And there wasn't a feeling that it was the producers themselves who were pricing Burgundy out of a lot of people's price range. It's been the secondary market that's driven that up to now. 
But if Burgundians start charging those prices themselves from scratch, and you can see the temptation because you put all the effort you want in to uh, all the effort you should put in to making really great wine, and then you've charged a similar price to before, only a little bit up, and you see it changing hands two days later at a totally different price, then you're understandably upset. Now, it may be that you haven't appreciated that only a small percentage is changing hands at these crazy prices, but that has been a factor in some Burgundians changing their prices now. But it's dangerous, and uh, I think we need all of us to fight back against it. I'm trying to do it when I talk to producers. Um, I'm trying to do it when I talk to my rich collector friends around the uh, world saying, you know, just be careful because if we break this model, it could stay broken for a generation. Um, so it's it's worrying. The sweet spot for what you might want to purchase then, I think, comes in the good village and the non-sexy Premier Cruz, where the quality is there uh, for most people in this vintage, and the price isn't that much different from what we've seen before. But you, it's up to you. It depends on your disposable income. But uh, when you see really high prices, which is not true of everybody, but some people, really high prices for uh, their top wines, then it's uh, maybe hard to justify. So um, I've uh, managed to do almost accidentally the AJP Taylor thing, which when he gave his history lectures at university, he would think of his first sentence and he'd think of his last sentence and he'd speak for exactly an hour. Uh, I've done 58 minutes uh, so far uh, and I don't want to go much beyond the hour. But uh, if we have any final questions, then please put them on the questionnaire and answer or on the chat um, or indeed any reflections on what you've you've heard tonight or you've already uh, thought about things, then uh, that would be great. Otherwise, uh, I may bump into some of you. I shall be in London next week, uh, so a few will be there. But those of you who have uh, dialed in from Norway and North America and uh, uh, all sorts of other countries, then uh, maybe not. Uh, Prague, Quebec, uh, scrolling back through. Lovely. Well, um, I didn't wish you a happy new year when we started, which I ought to have done, so I apologise for that. Um, but otherwise, if we have no more questions, and it doesn't look as though we do, um, I would like to thank you all for attending. Uh, do, please, if you haven't already done so, and you would like to, sign up for my website, www.insideburgundy.com. You've heard most of the reports are out and the rest will follow very shortly and there'll be loads more stuff coming up next year. So now, uh, one hour after I started, I shall say thank you and goodbye. And uh, I hope that you'll all get back onto drinking wine if you're being dry at the moment very, very soon. So thanks a lot and see you next time. Bye-bye.